is the this is the Sunday that everyone rocks their fall gear for the first time and accessories come out to play. I love it. It's nice. Um, James just mentioned the Magnolia Arts Festival that, that's going on, and um, one way that you could support that is to hang out for, for lunch or just make your way through and um, show your support on the way to the car even as you leave this place this morning. Um, if that's not feasible, you can do what me and uh, my family are doing. Uh, we have kids. We have two kids, two and under, so they have a strict nap time that we have to adhere to, but uh, when we wake them up from that nap, we're going to come back and we're going to grab ice cream from the TCBY truck and hang out here for the last couple hours from about three to five. So we will be here if no one else will and would love for you to join us for that if that makes more sense for you. Um, This morning we continue our uh, series through the book of Daniel, which if you've been around from the start has been a pretty peculiar book, right? I mean, we've We've seen crazy dreams. We've seen beasts coming up out of the sea. We've seen horns, big and small, that we're trying to identify and make sense of. Um, This morning, all of a sudden, we take a a breather from all the apocalyptic imagery that makes up much of the second half of the book of Daniel specifically. So if you felt a bit overwhelmed over the course of the last couple weeks, consider this morning a rest stop of sorts. We're pulling off of the apocalyptic highway to get out of the car and stretch, you might say, okay? So we won't counter any evil beasts coming up out of the sea this morning, no rams, no goats, no, no other animals that we have to identify, no horns that we have to make sense of, no stars falling from the heavens. Um, in fact, most of this morning's fa- uh, passage is comprised of Daniel's prayer to God, a man who deeply loves the Lord, very simply. And so here's the million-dollar question for us this morning. Is Daniel chapter 9, which is where we're going to be, is, is this a prescriptive passage? In other words, is the ultimate goal for us to pray like Daniel? Is this simply a model for prayer? Or is this a descriptive passage, an account of, of a unique prayer for a particular moment in redemptive history? Well, I don't think we can moralize this morning's passage and, and say that it's nothing more than a model For Christian prayer. It doesn't have the same driving force behind it that Jesus' words have in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and, and so forth and so on. This morning's passage doesn't have the same driving force as the Apostle Paul's words have in Philippians 4, where Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, with Jesus and the Apostle Paul in those particular passages, we have imperatives. We have commands. Pray then like this, Jesus says. Let your requests be made known to God, Paul says. Daniel chapter 9 is not filled with commands regarding how we should pray. And so I think it's safe to say that first and foremost, we're meant to see a man crying out to God in a particular moment in redemptive history. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to look at this prayer through the eyes of of Daniel, first and foremost. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to glean for ourselves in a passage like this. There are most certainly elements of this prayer that point to the unchanging character of God. There are elements of this prayer that point to the unchanging condition of man. There are uh, most certainly elements of this prayer that point to the deep need for a savior, and there are most certainly practical takeaways for us as it pertains to how we should pray. All of those things are true. And so in order to keep from moralizing this passage, we're gonna hold those practical application points for the very end 
after we've unearthed the gospel implications uh, for us coming out of a passage like this, and believe me, there are enormous gospel implications coming out of a passage like this. We should all be marveling at the cross of Jesus Christ just a few moments from now, if you haven't already this morning as we've gathered to worship. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 9 this morning. We'll be in the first 19 verses If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or have a translation that's difficult to understand, take that Bible with you as the churches give to you for free. Uh, That would excite us very much to know that you're exploring the scriptures on your own time. Let me pray for us because we have a good bit of work to do this morning. God, thank you again for what you're doing in this series Uh, both in us and through us as you send us out um, to uh, reach a people for yourself. God, even in this morning's passage, we see that your glory is at stake, your reputation is at stake. God, I pray this morning that we would encounter a heavy dose of your unchanging character. God, I pray that we would encounter a heavy dose of the condition of man God, I pray that we would see uh, that you are a God of covenant. And uh, ultimately, I pray that we would see uh, the implications of our deep need for a new covenant established in the blood of Jesus. And uh, that we would marvel at your cross, Jesus, this morning. And I do pray that as a result of our marveling, that uh, we would uh, grasp, uh, maybe even better than we did coming in this morning, Uh, what it can look like for us to pray. Um, Just very practically some takeaways for us that might encourage us this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you you work in our hearts? Um, Would you awaken our minds? Um, Those of us who come into this room this morning as spiritual sleepers, God, would you uh, awaken us? Would you move? Would you work? Uh, God, we anticipate you to do so. We expect you to move uh, in these coming moments as we unearth your very word. God, we love you. We lift lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. We get some context as we do at the beginning of every one of these chapters. It says this, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, it's an interesting name, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, Perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so now we've hit the fast forward button. The last two chapters took place under the reign of Belshazzar, the Babylonian king. This morning's passage takes place during the reign of the Persians who conquered Belshazzar and the Babylonians. Daniel's an old man now. He's likely in his 80s, which is really weird. Most of us, when we think through the book of Daniel, we think of this young kid who's in a lion's den um, and so forth and so on. Um, Daniel was roughly in his 80s when he was in that den of lions, and he's roughly in his 80s as we look at chapter 9 here. Um, We don't know whether he had a copy of the scriptures in hand or uh, whether he had hidden the word of the Lord in his heart in such a way that he was reminded of certain promises of God. But regardless, we know that he's drawn to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, particularly Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, which say this, this whole land, this is a, a prophetic word, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. This is Jerusalem. 
And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Another passage that may have come to Daniel's mind, Jeremiah 29, very famous passage. You're probably very familiar with verse 11. But let's step back a verse and begin in verse 10, which says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Whether it's because in God's providence, Daniel picked up his Bible and opened up to the book of Jeremiah one day, or because he had committed these particular passages to memory, he finds himself pondering the words of Jeremiah the prophet, and Not only does the math add up in this moment, right? Daniel's been in exile for roughly 70 years, but we know that the Babylonian king, the final Babylonian king, has just been defeated. And so Daniel takes that promise found in the book of Jeremiah to the Lord in prayer. Verse 3, Then I turned my face, Daniel says, to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Right away, you you get the impression that this is a prayer of confession and repentance, a prayer of grief and sorrow. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice that Daniel doesn't immediately go into petition mode. You see that? He he doesn't immediately bring out his wish list as if God is some sort of divine Santa Claus. He, He begins by acknowledging who it is that he's speaking to. He begins in adoration of God, acknowledging the very character of God. And it's a declaration rooted in the scriptures, namely the second commandment, which says this, Exodus chapter 20. This is God speaking. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That last phrase is almost verbatim what we see in verse four of Daniel chapter nine, right? Daniel's God is a God who shows steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. This is covenant language. Covenant meaning God the king makes certain promises to his people with the expectations that they obey his laws. Laws that are created not only for the king's glory, but for the good of the people. A covenant would include both blessings and curses. Blessings for obeying the king's laws and curses for disobeying the king's laws. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But look at verse 5. Daniel's just declared, God, your steadfast, uh, you show steadfast love to those who love you and keep your commandments. Verse 5. And we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. 
God, you show steadfast love to those who love you and keep your commandments. We have not kept your commandments. You see the dilemma? God, uh, Daniel declares God's people, including himself, to be covenant breakers in this moment. In verse 5 alone, Daniel incorporates five different phrases to communicate this idea of covenant breaking. And in verse 6, he makes clear that it's not just God's will that's been rejected, but also God's word. As one commentator puts it, the prophets are like lawyers of the covenant. The failure to listen to the words of the prophets is an indictment on God's people. And remember, with the breaking of the covenant come the curses of the covenant. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. The open shame that Daniel's talking about is the exile. Everything that we've been looking at from Daniel chapter 1 all the way up to this point, which makes sense if you go back to the the covenant blessings and covenant curses found in the Old Testament. Uh, We see them in two places particularly. Leviticus 26, which I know you all read this morning as a devotional. And Deuteronomy chapter 28. Leviticus uh, says this. Listen to these words which make up part of the list of curses for breaking the covenant. Leviticus 26 beginning in verse 32. God says, And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled by it. And I will scatter you among the nations. That's exile language. And I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Daniel's declaring, we've been taken away from our home. The the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been ransacked. We're in open shame to God's people. Daniel knows that that God's people are experiencing the devastating consequences of their sin. But it's not just that God's people have sinned. It's that sin cannot be swept under the rug by a righteous God. Verse 7, Daniel says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. I think it's fair to say that none of us would be incredibly excited to live in a community in which a local judge uh, was willing to sweep uh, guilty, violent crimes under the rug and allow guilty, violent criminals to run free. Would anybody be excited about that? You'd probably all sign the petition right now to have that judge disbarred, right? We, we all uh, understand justice in some sense, this idea that justice must be served. For God to sweep sin under the rug would make him unfit to sit on the bench as righteous judge of the entire created order. His character is at stake. It, it's kind of crazy to think about it that the fact that God actually punishes sin after making clear that he will punish sin, it proves God to be true to his word. It should strangely encourage us in knowing that that God's word is his bond. It's what Daniel is driving at to some degree. But but look at what Daniel goes on to pray regarding God's character and nature in verse 9. He says this, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. God is not only righteous, God is merciful. God is forgiving. These two words in the original Hebrew are actually plural, mercies and forgivenesses, which drives at either the intensity 
of God's mercy and forgiveness or the fact that he just does it over and over and over and over again, which if you understand sin at all, you know that to be true in your own life, right? Every morning, his mercies are new. He continues to forgive our trespasses. Regardless of what the plural language means, it's good news. Yes, God is righteous, but he's also full of mercy and full of forgiveness, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, Daniel says. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. In other words, what Daniel's saying is that mercy and forgiveness are our only hope, Lord. We're covenant breakers. If our hope is rooted in our righteousness, we're done for. Verse 11. This is kind of a summary of everything Daniel said thus far. Verse 11, all Israel, Daniel says, has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. You see the repetition of these themes that we've seen? Leading up to verse 11 thus far, you have this covenant language, this law of Moses language. You have the language of covenant breaking. Daniel says, all Israel has transgressed your law. You have the language of covenant curses. The curse has been poured out upon us. And you have this declaration of God's righteousness. The Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Daniel's summarizing his prayer here in in these particular verses. He's saying, God, you've made a covenant with us and laid out the consequences of breaking that covenant clearly. We have broken the covenant and you are righteous. Your word is your bond. And so you have responded rightly in bringing about the covenant curses for our disobedience to our good king. In other words, we've received the warning and we didn't listen. We made our bed and now, now we're lying in it. This is about as honest and transparent a prayer as you will find in the scriptures from Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the end of Revelation, you have a man acknowledging his sin as well as the sin of the people collectively at least 14 times in this prayer. That's why it feels a little heavy, right? There's an acknowledgement of sin 14 different times. And it's only then in the wake of that acknowledgement that Daniel appeals to God for mercy. Notice that up to this point, Daniel hasn't made a single request in this prayer yet. It's only been adoration and confession thus far. Now, in verse 15, he presents his request to the Lord. He says this, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. 
Daniel incorporates the, the reminder of God's deliverance of his people from enslavement in Egypt. You remember that story? We call it the Exodus. God showed himself to be mighty in delivering his people from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And now Daniel's asking God to flex once again um, to establish a second Exodus and leading his people out of exile back to uh, the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. He pleads with God to turn away his anger and his wrath from his holy city, Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So it's not only a, a plea for the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and the return of God's people to that city, but it's also a plea for the restoration of the temple. Daniel points out that, that God's reputation is at stake. He pleads with God to restore the sanctuary for God's own sake, verse 17. You have all these pagan kings and people under the reign of those pagan kings thinking that Daniel's God is weak, uh, that, that he can't protect his own temple that he can't protect his own city, that he can't protect his own people. And so Daniel pleads with God, do something for the sake of your own reputation, if for no other reason. And then he closes out his prayer, verses 18 and 19, by saying this, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Again, more appeals to God to act on the basis of his own reputation. But, but also, uh, notice the basis of Daniel's request in verse 18. He says, would you flex in this moment, God, but not because we're righteous, not because we've earned the right to ask you to do that, but because you're merciful. We're not righteous. We're a sinful mess. But your mercy can overcome our sin. And, and even if you won't act on the basis of your mercy, would you act for the sake of your glory, for your own sake, for the sake of your name? What a, what a beautiful, honest prayer that affirms both the character of God and the covenant of God. Next week, we'll take a look at God's response to Daniel's prayer. God responds almost immediately in terms of giving Daniel an answer. Um, but, but the question for us is this this morning. What are the implications of a prayer like this for you and me? And, and more particularly, what are the gospel implications? Well, let me just throw it out there like this. Christians say this all the time. It's not just a bumper sticker statement. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, there, there's a doctrine of the character, nature, and being of God in every systematic theology book that would affirm that statement to be true. It's not just a trite statement that Christians make. God is still great and awesome today, just like he was in Daniel's day. God is still righteous, perfect in all of his ways, and God is still merciful and forgiving. And we can also say that human beings are still sinful, right? We haven't uh, somehow created a superhuman race that now doesn't struggle with sin. Um, none of us can stand before God on the basis of our own merit. Simply put, God is a faithful covenant maker and covenant keeper, and we are unfaithful covenant breakers, just like Daniel, just like Israel. So, so where's the hope in Daniel chapter 9? 
I mean, there are a couple of dilemmas here, right? One's pretty obvious. We're incapable of the perfect covenant-keeping obedience that God in his righteousness demands. That's a big problem. If it's up to us to present God with a a moral record of covenant-keeping obedience, we're toast, right? But the other dilemma is this, and it has to do with God. Toward the end of this morning's passage, Daniel over and over again talks about God's reputation being at stake. So here's a reputation question as it pertains to God. How does God's mercy and forgiveness not call into question his righteous reputation? You ever thought about that? Let me ask that question again. How does God's mercy and forgiveness not call into question his righteous reputation? One would think that the extension of mercy and forgiveness to the lowliest of sinners would cheapen perfect justice. Just another uh, crooked judge who just sweeps crimes under, under the rug. Is there any possible way to solve these two dilemmas? What, what is the means, uh, would be another way to ask it, what is the means by which God can simultaneously forgive sinners and vindicate his righteousness? Answer? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 3 is all about. Romans 3 verses 23 through 26 say this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's just a big word that means he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf by his blood. What he says there in verse 23 of Romans 3, we've all broken the covenant. We all deserve the curses of the covenant. He goes on to say, um, this uh, spilling of Jesus' blood, this was to show, to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, his righteousness might be vindicated And also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian, that's you. That's me. The the cross of Jesus Christ, you might say, is the only way God can forgive sinners without sacrificing his justice on the altar of his mercy. The cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy and justice of God collide. God is able to vindicate his righteous reputation by punishing Jesus for your sin and my sin. That's what the gospel declares, that Jesus was the perfect covenant keeper. He lived the life that you and I could never live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, the curse for covenant breaking. Jesus is the means by which God can simultaneously punish sin and forgive sinners. Isn't the gospel glorious? I mean, it's so easy to go, yep, Jesus died for my sins, and just kind of go into this coast mode as a Christian in such a way that that truth starts to become dull to our minds and our hearts. But it's not dull at all. We couldn't keep the old covenant, so Jesus established a new one in his blood. Jeremiah 31 throws out some audacious promises that are rooted in the new covenant. God has sent his son to die in the place of covenant-breaking rebels like you and me. And now, as his redeemed, listen to this, all of the benefits of the new covenant are ours, and here, here they are. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 33. This is God speaking. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, no longer on tablets of stone, but on human hearts, which is why if you experience yourself grieving your sin, it's because God has written his law on your hearts, and he's indwelt you with the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people intimacy with your maker and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say uh, teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god all are covenant breakers uh, across the span of humanity all kinds of human beings and god saying from the greatest to the least my capacity to save uh, crosses all lines in the sand For I will forgive their iniquity, God closes with saying, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you're like me. I remember my sin all the time. Um, I am condemned by my own thoughts oftentimes. It's why I love that song, Before the Throne of God Above, so much. That second verse, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, I, I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. And, and sometimes it's not even Satan. It's just me with my own thoughts, just uh, soaking in and, and uh, incapable of casting aside the remembrance. And yet we're told that God will remember our sin no more. Super encouraging. That's what the gospel affords us. A relationship with the holy God who invites us to know him. That's the ultimate takeaway for us as it pertains to prayer. Do you see how much uh, of a great disservice it is to make a passage like this nothing more than a model for prayer? And believe me, there are many who would do that. Who would go, here you go, the five steps to a better prayer life based on Daniel chapter 9. And just completely bypass the new covenant established in the blood of Christ, which is so glorious, which allows us to marvel at the person and work of Jesus and allow that to be the fuel for our very prayer lives. There's some rich gospel implications in this morning's passage meant to cause us to glory in the person and work of Jesus. But there are some things that we can learn as it pertains to prayer looking at a passage like Daniel chapter 9. Um, some things that can grow us in prayer. Daniel chapter 9 shows us that when we don't know what to pray, we can always pray the promises of God. You you ever find yourself struggling with what to pray? Even when you carve out time, like I'm going to set aside 15 minutes this morning, I'm going to pray, and then you spend 12 of those minutes just, you know, completely mind numb, trying to figure out what's the first word that should come out of my mouth. I know I I do. I have that, that very same struggle. Even when I purposely carve out time for prayer, which I've tried to do this on Tuesday mornings to go walk the cart paths for a couple hours, and there are times when I'm in another neighborhood before the first words come out of my mouth because I'm just stuck. It's kind of like cranking a car in the middle of December. Um, Daniel bases his prayer, we're told, on the certain promise of God to deliver his people from exile found in the book of Jeremiah. The Bible is filled with promises of God, is it not? Promises that we can always pray. You can pray Philippians 1.6, God, please bring to completion the good work you began in me. That's a great prayer. 
You can pray Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus, build your church so that the gates of hell cannot stand against it. A beautiful prayer. You can pray Romans 16, 20. God, please soon crush Satan under your feet. You can pray Philippians 4, 7. God, please guard my heart and mind with the peace that surpasses understanding. You can pray Revelation 21, 4. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and wipe away every tear from my eyes as you come and return and make everything sad untrue. If we were to focus on the promises of God alone in Scripture, we have hours and hours and hours of material that we can use to direct our prayers, do we not? And we're talking about prayers that, um, that we can pray with great expectation within our hearts for God to move because they're rooted in promises that he's going to fulfill them. Which leads me to my second point. Daniel chapter 9 shows us that a firm grasp on the sovereignty of God is meant to embolden us to pray, not to hinder our prayers. Daniel knew. He knew that God was going to bring his people back out of exile after 70 years had passed. Notice that he doesn't respond with, well, I know you're going to do it anyway. I read that in Jeremiah, so what's the point of praying? Rather, he responds with, I know you're going to do it, so please do it. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse to dismiss the significance of prayer. It's the very fuel for prayer. It's praying knowing that we have a God who's actually on the throne who can do something when we lift our petitions up to him. Let me give you a couple of angles on attempting to make sense of this. Some of you have heard this analogy before. I'm starting to lose my memory in terms of where it came from. I think John Piper, we'll just give it to him. He, he's good for everything else. Um, he, he makes the point that uh, if you want a nail in a board, you don't hold it up to the board and just wait for it to burrow its way in. That would be weird, right? But rather, you pick up a hammer because God has ordained that hammers be the means by which nails go into boards. The same can be said of prayer, that God has ordained that prayer be the means by which his decreed will come to pass. Can you make perfect sense of that? No, you cannot. Um, I know back in August, um, I went on a cart path prayer walk on one of those Tuesday mornings and just didn't know what to pray. And uh, for whatever reason, it may have been the Holy Spirit, maybe some subjective thinking, I don't know, maybe just dreamer, uh, church planter thoughts. But um, I asked the Lord, God, would you send 100 people into this auditorium sometime this fall and 50 uh, volunteer adults and kids into that kid's wing uh, at some point in the fall, one Sunday? That would be really cool. Not so that we can say, hey, we're now a church of 150, but because that's that many more people who are soaking in and being saturated with the gospel. That very Sunday in this auditorium, 100 people and in the kid's wing, 49 just to keep me humble. Now, did God know what was going to happen in the Sunday upcoming? Absolutely. Did God want 149 people in this room? Sure he did. Did God want me to ask him to do it? You better believe it. If that one's not good enough for you, let me just um, hold Daniel himself as an example. Okay, This entire book, from the very start, has been... Uh, a petition for us to grab hold of a God who rules and reigns sovereignly um, from his throne in the heavenlies. That from chapter one, Daniel declares, God gave, 
God gave the people of Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the, the pillage of his temple. God gave Daniel wisdom and insight uh, before Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian court. God gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. Uh, God dethroned Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and set up new kings. That, that This entire book of the Bible is a declaration that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God shall endure forever. I've said it week in and week out. Now, the very guy who's putting pen to paper to articulate that kind of sovereign God is the one who is not only on his knees in Daniel chapter 9, but if you rewind a few chapters, we find that Daniel prays several times a day. This is a rhythmic part of his life. If for no other reason than Daniel, as an example, we should grab hold of the fact that God desires that his people cry out to him and ask him to do what he has decreed that he will do as the author of this divine, redemptive, historical narrative. Daniel chapter 9 shows us also that prayer is about so much more than asking God for things, for stuff. Is that a part of it? Absolutely. But it's most certainly not the whole of it, right? Daniel spends 14 verses declaring the character of God. He spends 14 verses confessing his sin and the sin of God's people at large. Only then does he move into this time of petition, of request. And even then he asks God to act not only for the sake of the people's good, but for the sake of God's glory, God's reputation. He actually cares about God's reputation as he prays. This is a man who understands that um, human beings cannot put God in their debt. This is a man who understands that the condition of humanity is such that 14 verses of confession are a necessary prerequisite to asking God for anything. It's the difference between a prayer life motivated by religion and a prayer life motivated by the gospel. We talk about this in our partnership course, that religion says, my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in times of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. The gospel says otherwise. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose in prayer is not control of my environment, but rather intimacy with God. So I think the question begs to be answered as a heart diagnostic. What motivates your prayer life? Do you call out to God only in times of, of distress? Or are there generous stretches of praise, of adoration, of the confession of sin when you talk to God? Is your main purpose in prayer to control your circumstances or is it to grow in, in a relationship with the one who made you and redeemed you? That'll give you a pretty good idea as to whether it's religion or the gospel that's driving your heart. We, we could talk about all kinds of things that have to do with the doctrine and theology of prayer. We could put together an entire sermon series on prayer. Even earlier this week in our staff meeting, um, I just started rifling off one angle after another on prayer, and I think we came up with about a two-month sermon series right there on the spot. It's very possible. The Bible says a lot about prayer, so much so that, that we can't get comprehensive this morning. It would be impossible to do that. But let me say this. Hear me loud and clear. If you don't hear anything else that I'm saying um, as it pertains to the, the practical implications for us coming out of a passage like this, 
the new covenant established in Jesus' blood affords you the privilege and joy of knowing God intimately. That you can know God. That's a promise of the new covenant. Again, going back to Jeremiah chapter 31. It's not about hollow, empty religion and ritual. If that's what you've been living for years and years, I would implore you to to come out of the shadows and to turn to a God who wants to actually have a relationship with you this morning and has made a way for that through the spilled blood of Jesus. It is about a relationship. And one of the most significant ways to foster that relationship is through prayer. Let me say it this way as we close this morning. Don't pray in order to be like Daniel, but in order to know God. Let me say that again. Don't pray in order to be like Daniel, but in order to know God. If that's, if that's your motivating factor, intimacy with God for the glory of God, I think you'll be all right. I will be their God and they will be my people. By the blood of Jesus Christ, the gospel tells us that covenant-breaking rebels like you and me can intimately relate with the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the universe. We're going to celebrate that in a moment through communion. But let me first say this. If you're not a Christian and you're here exploring the truth claims of Christianity, my, my hope is that you would, you would weigh the two paradigms that exist. One, the old covenant says it's about law obeying and law keeping. And if you're unable to do that perfectly, the curses of the covenant are yours for the taking. The the gospel paradigm says Jesus has come to establish a new covenant in his blood in order to redeem covenant-breaking rebels like you and me. And so I would implore you to lay down your moralistic evidences and to turn to Jesus in faith and trust in him for salvation this morning and experience the relationship that that we're talking about this morning. If you are a Christian, as we prepare to, to take communion, which we do here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, this is a beautiful opportunity to celebrate the new covenant. To, to be reminded once again of a truth that maybe has become old and stale to you. Um, this morning, to, to be reminded that a way has been made so that covenant-breaking rebels like you and me can be redeemed and restored to God and can know him, that he knows us, we can know him, we can experience intimacy with him, we can go to him in prayer. I would encourage you to do that this morning, to even pray what uh, Daniel prayed in verse 19, to ask God to hear to receive what you lift up to him in prayer in the coming moments, to ask God to forgive as we confess our sin to him yet again, and to ask God to act for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his name in the midst of not only the church gathered, but as we leave this place to make much of his, his glory and his renown. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.